This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Sarah Beek, and this is part two of our conversation about her new book, Red Hot and Holy. Sarah Beek is a Harvard-trained scholar of comparative world religions who spent years traveling the world studying with Sufi dervishes, Tibetan monks, Croatian mystics, shamans, and more. She's the author of The Red Book, and with Sounds True, a new book, Red Hot and Holy, A Heretic's Love Story, where she offers an intimate and provocative view of what it means to fall madly in love with the divine as a modern woman, inspiring readers to live their own spiritual love affair, out loud and on purpose. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Sarah and I spoke about sacred touch and shadow work. We also talked about what Sarah calls cosmic family therapy, resonances we might have with a trauma experienced by someone in a different lifetime, and the type of healing that can result when we enter those types of traumas. We also talked about what it means to know deep in our being that we are beloved. Here's part two of my Red Hot and Holy conversation with Sarah Beek. In part one of our conversation, Sarah, we talked about red some, red the color, red the essence of of you. And we talked some, I think, about holy, what it means to be holy and devotion. and But we didn't talk yet really about the hot part of Red Hot and Holy, and I think that's where we need to go now. There's a chapter in the book on your, we could say, experiments, your journey into the world of sacred prostitution. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. What drew you to that and what happened? My soul drew me to that. So it wasn't something I consciously sought or read about and wanted to go try. Um, It happened really naturally. One night with a creative partner, um, there was just a a shift in the room and in my body. And it's a shift where I recognize that she, my lady, my soul, my greater being is just is here more. And that led to me actually starting to touch my creative partner in very just specific but natural ways. And there was such a honest heart to heart transmission of what many people might call eros nor erotic energy. For me, it was the first time I had ever felt that close to the divine. There was no doubt in my mind or in my body or in my heart that what was happening, although it it might look sexual or it might feel erotic, there was no doubt that this was divine. I didn't have any fluffy stuff around it. There was just a clear knowing and also this recognition of like, oh, this is this is what we do when we connect with people. And we 
have that soul-to-soul permission to actually touch one another in a particular way. I don't think it's unique at all, but I was really stunned by just how profound it was for me and the person who was participating or experiencing it. And after it happened, I remember thinking, like, that was strange. That wasn't my typical night working with my creative partner. But I couldn't deny the the real, and this is, it's a heavy word, but the real holy experience that was there. So what started happening was I would be out at, like, Whole Foods, or I would be on Facebook, or I'd be at a spiritual retreat, and... I could just recognize um, that there was a man there that I was supposed to work with. And to me, it's like work with a capital W. And somehow we would end up connecting. And if the energy was right, we would have these experiences together that involved um, touch. And I also think of this sort of touch with a capital T, I also experienced it as a sort of feminine kind of gnosis. So you're touching with this knowing as the body. And it is something that has definitely not been mm, understood. It's been something that has, we've abused, you know, we've used for wrong reasons. It's been manipulated. I mean, there's a lot of baggage around this type of work. And for me, it was it was very rarely actually sexual. It was mostly erotic and mostly just a way that I got to actually experience this this real honest part of myself. I mean, it. I sometimes describe it like if you were uh, one day handed like a a thing of paint and paintbrushes and a canvas. And you started just painting and you were like, oh, my God, I'm, <laughs> I like this. This feels good. I feel like me, like I'm getting to actually express this. That's similar to what this felt like. Um, the difference was is that this is not really something you can put on your Facebook status. <laughs> this isn't something that is, um, you know, really recognized. And, and there's a tremendous amount of fear, even in that, in that phrase, sacred prostitute, understandably. And it definitely, in a union sense, is a part of our psyche that we all have. It's a part of us. It's an archetype that we all, we all are innately a part of that has definitely been shoved away. It's been repressed. So it will come out in different ways. In the unhealthy ways, it comes out through, you know, like porn addiction and just shopping like any anything to sort of get that erotic high and drugs etc um this was a particular way it showed up for me and i do not feel at all that it's a way that other people need to experience eros and you definitely do not have to do what i did to embody the sacred prostitute archetype. Okay, now I have all kinds of questions about this. (laughs) So let's start with how is it that in these interactions, things stayed in the quote-unquote erotic dimension without moving into the sexual? Meaning I would imagine here, I mean, I'm of course imagining all kinds of things and who knows what I'm imagining (laughs) if that was actually what was going on. But I would just imagine people getting very turned on and, and basically fucking pretty soon in this process and being like a highly so ha- yeah. sexual encounter. So how did it not go there? It just it wasn't, that wasn't the energy. It just didn't, it, that's not how it moved my body or the other person's. And if it did, if it started to move them in a direction that did not feel congruent or in alignment with the energy, we would either stop or most often than I would comment on it. And so what would happen a lot is so many sexual programs and instincts and impulses come up, of course, immediately with someone I was working with because it's like if there's a woman straddling your lap, you're thinking like, oh, this is what I normally do. I'll grab her ass or I'll go in for a kiss or I'll – and that wasn't allowed. If it wasn't coming from that space within them, they were not allowed to touch me. And I actually very – I. So did you explain these as sort of the ground rules when you mm-hmm. started your quote-unquote work yeah. session, which I, I really – I mean, this is a new definition of work <laughs> if I've ever heard it. Why, why do you use that word? 
Um, it's with the capital W, but it had that flavor to it. It, it had the same flavor, I think, if somebody who's a massage therapist or does acupuncture or any sort of healing modality, like they would consider it work, you know, probably not work like going to a cube, but they consider what they're doing a form of healing work. And this wasn't like in my brain, like I'm doing healing work. It wasn't that, but it had that same connotation that there was something actually happening here that was bigger than both of us, that included both of us, and that was really aching to have happen. And so in order to be, to stay in integrity with it, that's just what it felt like to call it. And the gr- the ground rules that you would lay out mm-hmm. at the beginning? I would just be really clear that this wasn't, you know, a date, like they weren't going to get laid. Um, after our experience, I probably would never talk to them again or contact them again. You know, I'd sort of lay out these things and then sort of say, but if you want to possibly experience this, then we can go see what happens. And most of the time they did want to see what happened. And and that was that was where it would be, you know, a teaching, I think, for both of us because I'm also really aware that in Northern California there are many people right now that are calling themselves sacred prostitutes. And I think that's fine and good. And there's definitely been a huge rise in like the Tantric community and Chantricas and Dakinis and et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's, you know, that serves a purpose and that's great. Um, it didn't feel quite like that to me. I, I don't know why it never resonated being in those particular groups or even like necessarily like using that title. It didn't, it never really felt quite right. Um, the other aspect of it that was really important for me to experience and as a way my lady works with me is I wasn't supposed to go into this like trancey state or like leave my body and have something else come through. She always wants me there with her. My human awkwardness, my doubts, my uncertainty had to be present just as much as my utter and total knowing of exactly how to touch this person that would bring them that much more into their own heart and in into their own divinity and into their own like remembrance of what the divine feminine is both inside them and outside them and how to touch that and to me the touch with the capital t extends far outside this little container that would end up happening it was how to you know touch their words if they're working on writing how to not even just touch their lover but to touch a dog a tree the steering wheel like it extended out to life how do i touch life and so you would see how they touched life by how they would respond to me more often than not. And so I learned, you know, just as much as I think they did. And I had just as many sort of so-called healings as I think they did. You know, one of them just being able to do this work. Just, it's like being able to to actually have that experience of myself Um was a gift because it's not really allowed <laughs> or or taught in school or or understood. No, it's not. No, and no. and and I understand why. I I'm really clear about there is so much shadow around this type of work. There is there is so much that can come up about why you're doing it. If you're trying to get something from someone, if they're trying to get something from you, if you're trying to be a hot sex goddess, you know, like there, there are all these things that arise and just the pathologies that are there on a cultural level around this idea of the sacred prostitute are enormous and the projections onto it and the real honest desire for this type of feminine touch is inside all of us. But it comes with a whole host of, of baggage. And so you have to, for me, I had to, in order to do this work and after the work, really face that baggage, both within myself and outside. And that chapter was, besides the chapter on Sarah, the hardest chapter, I I would get nauseous. I would just, everything would come up um, of not wanting to write it. 
and really trying to do all these different things, like trying to make it more spiritual or trying to make it more self-helpy or, or, or kind of shave off some of the erotic aspects of it. Or I would find that part of myself that wanted to make it so mystical, sexual, powerful that people would be like in awe of it or something, you know? So I had to watch all of that come up constantly and, and just try to be real about it. Like, I don't think it's unique. It was incredibly transformative for me. It's not something I still do in that way. And, um, I don't, I don't necessarily recommend that particular. So, so let's talk a little bit. How long was this period of your life that you were working in this way? Probably, I think about a year. And why did you stop? Uh, I met Marion and everything stopped. Like everything, the, the big pause button on my life happened and, after Marion, so much of the soul work was also the shadow work and really having to look at some shadow pieces of mine that were present in those situations, not necessarily in the actual things that happened, but afterwards stuff would creep up that can, I would can have you to say, watch. Can you say more about that? How was your yeah. shadow part of this phase Need of your to life? be desired, yeah. need to feel in control, need to feel like I'm special, in some way because I can do this and I can like turn on a man like so much. So there was, and that all, you know, it's from high school to like a little kid to just not feeling loved or appreciated. So do you think it might've been possible or it might be possible for someone to do that type of sacred prostitute work and not have it be coming from those types of shadow distortions, just a very pure healing, holy exploration? Yeah. I, I would I would say for the most part in the actual experience, like when I was with someone, it was the true definition of purity for me. And it was in those moments where I, you, there's no way of separating the erotic from the divine, of separating even the sexual from the divine. There were, they were so fused together. And I keep saying this word, but it's so honest. It's just afterwards is when I would notice certain things creep up, you know. I was also very hard on myself afterwards. Um, I was scared I would be hurting people. I was scared it would confuse. It did confuse some people. (laughs) Um, Afterwards, (laughs) there would be these sort of ramifications. And there was this point I got to, you know, after Marion, that I, I recognized that not only did I need to get even clearer but this sounds sort of dramatic but it it also just honestly felt like this planet can't handle this work right now like it's it there's no there's not a safe space um to do this in a real honest way and there's there's a real grief around that and sadness around it because I think any of us who have experienced moments like that, we just, we recognize the truth and we recognize it's, it's a real fundamental aspect of the divine that we are a part of and that it wants to express itself. And so knowing that it's a little, um, forbidden here or misunderstood, there's, there's a grief around it for me. Now you mentioned that there was one chapter in the book that was even harder to write (laughs) than the chapter on sacred prostitution, and that was the quote-unquote Sarah chapter. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell our listeners a little bit about that. Why it was so hard to raise. (laughs) And just what the content of that chapter was about. Yeah, there, there were days where I was, you know, I would be thinking when I'm writing the book, I'm like, all right, this this might push some buttons. And then I would, I would sort of get that there was more to share. And I was like, really? Really? Like, I'm not weird enough. Like, this book isn't (laughs) crossing enough lines. Well, it is a heretic's love story. (laughs) And that's what they kept pointing to. They were like, "Mm." Um, But this one for me was was definitely a a big, huge, huge trigger. And it still is to some degree. Um, But I started having very strong uh, synchronicities and what I call divine winks um, showing up that felt directly related to Rad. And the more they started showing up, they also started to 
seemed directly related to a lineage in particular, and it was, or it is, this lineage that isn't recognized as much, although popular culture has definitely gotten more juice from things like the Da Vinci Code. So what I'm talking about here is the lineage that um, is carried through Magdalene and Jesus, and in particular, sort of the feminine side of that lineage. And so in the noose and the between, I started having very, very strong, but again, organic, like natural, not otherworldly, just very strong experiences um, and memories and just of not just this love between Jesus and Magdalene, but actually like what that created and that created from my perspective, an actual human child, um, a daughter that is called Sarah. And so that just there on one level is like ripe with all sorts of discomfort um, for people and for myself. And I recognize also because of the Da Vinci Code and the, the really natural response of like, there's a piece missing. It's a Magdalene. And even the archetypal response of, of, okay, we got the divine masculine. Now we have the divine feminine. They're able to, to finally really join hands in this potential love story that is being revealed at this time. So I know all that's going on. I know the projections onto it. I know the pop cultural phenomenon. And I also am very familiar with the, the ways we can even get manipulated on the astral planes or the subtle realms into thinking certain things or to having certain experiences. So my experiences with Sarah have been the most, um, the most profound and life-changing and confusing and heart-ripping experiences. Now, is there scholarship that supports what you're saying, or is this more really what you've discovered in the between? Yeah, no scholarship. There's definitely people who have paid more attention to what we could call the oral traditions, especially in France in some parts of Europe that speak very directly or indirectly, but they allude to a child that came from Jesus and Magdalene. Um, some people have related her to Sarah Lacalle, which is an icon kept in Marie de la Mer in the south of France. And that's the point where Mary Magdalene and sort of a crew came after the persecution that was happening during the crucifixion and they landed on these shores. And so there's many different legends about Sarah Lacalle. Like she was a, a servant of Mary Magdalene or she was a gypsy queen who was already there and welcomed the crew. She's known as the queen of the outsiders to the gypsies in southern France and her icon is kept um, in a underground sort of grovel or cave while Magdalene and the other Marys are kept in a very light-filled church above because they're recognized by the church. So some legends um, have directly related those as those together as Sarah's actually being the child. How do you know, you yourself know, when you're having visions and receiving this information in the between that, I mean, you said maybe it's astral manipulation (laughs) or astral manipulation (laughs) exists. Maybe it's delusion. Maybe this is just, you've, you're really have a fabulous creative mind (laughs) or who knows, uh, you know, 50 other things versus, oh, I'm actually tuning into something real here. How do you find your own confidence? Mm Mm-hmm. Where my confidence stops is actually when I'm not in the between and my ego starts coming in and starts being like, you sound (laughs) crazy, you sound delusional, you are taking an archetype too far, you are taking this too literally, you you know, all of that. I know all of that stuff. Like, I got it. (laughs) I studied that stuff. I have it around me. It's packed and tight. Um, when I'm in the between, the experience, as I've mentioned before about the between, is something that is so natural. It feels like I am just experiencing my own body. 
it feels like I know this, I know this story, I know her pain, and, and the, the, there's severe trauma that Sarah went through. And I cannot get away from it. It's like this, <laughs> anything that shows up in my life is just this sort of regular, you know, issue that I'm dealing with. Like, I'm scared of this, or this is, for some reason, I'm reading this and I my body can't stop shaking. Or nine times out of ten, I'll check in the next day and I call checking in as sort of how I enter the news, which is just sort of sitting and being with myself. Nine times out of ten... My team, the lineage, or just my lady, will point me back to Sarah's life. And it's aggravating, to be honest. Like, I've, I've, it's frustrating because I'm like, really? <laughs> do we have to look at this again? Like, do I have to see something that I don't even understand and try to, honestly, it feels like try to heal this? this this aspect this trauma and it's multi-layered and there are honest to god like you know just soul retrievals i have to do where i i have to locate part of sarah's soul that fragmented because being here was so traumatic and actually for her you know and i i speak about her in this way because this is how real she's become to me and at the same time i'm still fully holding all of that possibility of what she actually also is you know the the archetype and the healing stream and all of that I, I hold that on the same table but what I've noticed is if I completely if I just go there to the smart psychologically sound <laughs> spiritually correct way of dealing with her things start to really not go well um it begins to feel like I am denying a huge part of my own being because I am so worried that I might be all of these other things, mm -hmm. delusional, I'm misusing an archetype, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And instead of just being like, I've been doing soul retrievals on myself for years and this is the same thing, but I'm doing it for Sarah. And So tell me when you do a soul retrieval, and maybe you could give an example of doing a soul retrieval for... Not Sarah Beek right here, right. but <laughs> Sarah yeah. of the uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene family. What that looks like when you say soul retrieval. What are you doing? Well, I'll usually start to feel trauma in my body. It's like PTSD. And I, I'll just sit down and I'll check in. And if there's actually a piece, it will show up in this sort of way in my inner vision like, there's actually a piece of her stuck someplace. And so I go there, like, however you do, you know, energetically. or, And it's usually, you know, in a scene of some sort, but it's almost like a self-created hell. I often think of that movie, like, What Dreams May Come, and there's an ending scene where the woman's in her own. That's what it feels like with aspects of Sarah's soul that are locked in this trauma. They're frozen in this... this sort of energetic compartment and I have to go there and almost uh, befriend her and bring in like the lady our lady <laughs> and, and help remind her of actually the truth of the situation and to reconnect her with her soul helps her understand actually what's going on and helps her get out so it's it's a, it's an interesting sort of soul retrieval because um I'm dealing with a traumatized energetic aspect. I'm dealing with like a traumatized soul fragment. So each time it's a little bit like approaching like a scared dog and actually or telling this piece like there's actually another reality out there. There's another truth out there and, and this is just sort of stuck. I know you think this is real, but there's actually something else going on here and we want you to come home. And why do you think you have this relationship now in this lifetime with Sarah from the Jesus Mary Magdalene time? I picked the short end of the stick. <laughs> Someone had to do it. <laughs> no, I don't think I'm the only one doing it. I think it's actually coming through on a collective level in different ways. Um, the, the intimacy, like I feel with Sarah, is very 
I don't know. I haven't talked to a lot of people. I, you know, I Googled around when it first started happening because I'm like, what is this? And there's definitely other people having experiences and they're like channeling Sarah and are, and think that they're the reincarnation of Sarah and there's different stuff going on. Um, the difference for me, and this again reminds me of the noose and it reminds me of the soul path and very much the way for me like Red communicates is Sarah is this freaking traumatized teenager and like a little girl that I've taken. Like this is not some like Jesus and Magdalene's child, like holy things flying out of her armpits. Like this is something, this is a being that was present during an incredibly difficult time on this planet. And that's what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with like <laughs> family dysfunction and and the fact that she didn't have a dad and the fact that her way of coming into this planet was actually being in the womb of Magdalene as Magdalene is witnessing her beloved being crucified. So Marion Woodman talks a lot about trauma we all get or just information that happens when we are a fetus. Like our consciousness is picking up things. And so there's a whole area of work that knows that and recognizes that. And I feel like that's been a real essential piece for Sarah because she, her consciousness had to witness something and actually also feel it from the position of her mother's body. And it was intense as your first sort of entranceway on earth. It was like, this is how divine love incarnate is is treated. I don't think I want to be here. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. I think what I'm still trying to understand is what you feel is the cosmic meaning of your connection with this traumatized figure from the past. Why is this so important to you and Mm -hmm. your soul's journey? Because Sarah never got to give her gift. She never got to be herself. She was so scared and she made some really poor choices and she acted out she rebelled and and this is all knowledge you know from what you've seen in visionary space yes i talk about and you know when i talk about this this is something that again i'm very aware this is my experience i would never go out and say this happens this is this information and this um experiences with her as I said, they are as real to me now as my own life. I, I didn't want that to happen. I wasn't expecting it. I fought so much against it. And when I, there's a point where I think all of us who are critical thinkers and want to be grounded and want to, <laughs> you know, stay true, um, there's a point sometimes that we can actually almost start abusing our soul in the process because the information we're receiving is so quote unquote out there that we're actually using our psychological soundness t- to hammer yeah. it away yeah. and I was doing that thoroughly I was really good at it <laughs> and there gets to a point where it's so real and the, the transitions if I would work on something in her life something changed in my life directly and you can't help but start to notice that you're like that's happening I don't really get it but our stories, although they're very different on a surface level, there's a core level. And I think this speaks to just the core level of the feminine here, like being very confused and not having a voice. I mean, Sarah is completely unknown. There are no, she doesn't exist according to academics. And when I was studying at Harvard, like this would be laughed out of the classroom. Like there, and this being actually knows that. Like, she knows she doesn't exist here for people. And yet, the way I know her, she was a flesh and blood human who actually has a lot to say. 
and wasn't given the chance and didn't take the chance and felt a tremendous amount of guilt around it. And you also understand there's a lot of like teenager parts of her. So she takes on this guilt, like the church got to go out into the light and the feminine got squished underground and abandoned and buried in this whole feminine lineage because Magdalene had an entire posse. And so like this entire thing, and it doesn't make sense. And yet the thing that's so odd about it is that when we start talking about it, because we haven't heard of it, or we might think that's a woo-woo or out there or a new agey thing or just a projection. And that's so deeply sad to me that we, we don't trust the fact that this actually might have happened. Like, why is it so crazy? You know, why that that's fascinating to me. (laughs) So you were saying the connection for you with your life is that you are going to bring your gifts forward. And so that you're sort of redeeming this unlived life and bringing that energy to its possible fruition and fullness. And I think that's what Sarah is for all of us. It's that part that's been very fearful of speaking our truth and just being ourselves. If ourselves don't fit or aren't even recognized or acknowledged or squished down by the traditions and just the society around us. And that's really what I see her as, is that piece that's actually in all of us that's, that's traumatized around that and that actually is aching to really speak. And it doesn't matter what tradition or non-tradition you're a part of. But for me in particular, it's definitely, I was, you know, born Catholic and I left the church and went on a, a large, large exploration. And this actually has swung me back into recognizing that what I was being called to do as a child, I wanted to be a priest more than anything. Like I knew it. Like I had what most Catholics refer to as the call. But, you know, because I had a vagina, I wasn't allowed to be a priest. And what started happening is just that calling hasn't gone away, but it's just sort of attached itself to me in these different ways where it will show up in in just hilarious ways, you know, where a friend will be like, I want you to officiate the wedding, which is something, you know, a priest would normally do in the Catholic tradition. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, we're going to get married on July 22nd. And I'm like, huh. That's Magdalene's feast day. There will be countless, 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 there have been countless coincidences that have not allowed me to dismiss the reality of this lineage and my honest relationship to this lineage (laughs) for too long. I can do my little like intellectual dance around it. I can, you know, broaden it out, make it really general. I can do all that. And I, and I think that's important to do but I also just individually have finally actually found a home. It just in a particular lineage. It just happens to be a lineage that isn't really recognized um, so much on one level. But I think like most of us who do feel a strong resonance with this particular lineage that I'm talking about or expressing, it is in our veins. Like it is not, it is, it is so clear as day. It's, it's like if I cut myself and poured it out, that's where all this is. It's not something I read about or it's not even something I wanted to know about, (laughs) but, um, it's, it's my truth. And it's, it's very triggery because it's like, great. Like I have to come out into the world and like talk about this and also really be okay with talking about the personal connection because it would have been easy. And I, I had chapters, I had versions where I was just talking about the archetype, you know, of Sarah and, and I can do that well. And Sarah would throw a fit. She would just be like, you're denying actually like this intimate relationship we have together that you might not fully understand, but just being open to start the conversation about it in an intelligent and grounded and heartful way is the important part. Not not what people believe or don't believe, but just to be willing to include the fact that that this happens. I don't think I'm the only one who's having these sort of experiences with different figures from the past or beings that aren't even, you know, present on this planet. But I'm really eager and excited to talk about it in ways that are like this, you know, that are real 
and aren't just woo-wooing it out or just dismissing it because it sounds foreign. Well, I think people don't really know what to make of the type of intimations or the type of visions or senses or dreams that they have in their own life. Mm. I mean, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking of people who have shared things with me. And they're like, I'm not quite sure what to make of this. I don't know what, I mean, does it mean this is a past life for me? Does it mean that we're currently connected in parallel universes? <laughs> does it mean, and they go through this whole thing. But what I hear you saying is that you want to stand in the fact that it's really, really important and significant for you at a personal level and that you're not going to dismiss that. Yeah, I can't. It's denying Sarah is is honestly like denying a part of my soul. It's it's just and that's the sort of tough like cookie about it. And the, you know, the embarrassing part and the troubling part. <laughs> Now, you uh, talked about coincidences as divine winks, and I'm curious, is this like a big quadruple wink or something that you have the same name? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think basically how it's been delivered, and this is how my team does it, I've kind of asked for it. Like when I was little, I was like, I'm not the fastest kid in the group, so I need you all to, like, really make things clear for me. Like, treat me like I'm in kindergarten when it comes to to things that I re- that are important for my soul here. Like, make it really freaking clear. And with this lineage piece and the soul piece, I it is the, the stories and the things that I cannot escape are ridiculous. Like, I'm like, really? Okay. Like, you, you keep driving it home that there's this connection and there's this... So it's like divine winks, yes, like amped and humorous and just... I say this in the book, but like they keep it real, you know, it's, it's, it's real for me. It's, and yeah, I can't escape it. I, I would like to. <laughs> yeah. Now, now I noticed during this part of the conversation, it's probably the part where you've been the most emotional as we've talked about Sarah. And so I'm curious to know a little bit, what is that emotion about for you? I don't really, I don't have like words around it exactly, but I do know just even like sitting here talking to you about her in this way is a, is a big step for me. And I can feel its ripple back. Um, I can feel like this flesh and blood, like a little girl and teenager and she died pretty young. I can just feel that little break of relief that there is something being expressed about her. Honestly, you know, I don't have the answers, but there's an honesty in being willing to do that with her. Because she's waited a very long time. Did you have any sense that there were other children from Jesus and Mary Magdalene? I don't know. You know, I think because Sarah is such a troubled one, um, that's really been the focus. And the focus has honestly been so much of just healing. It's I call it cosmic family therapy. It's It's less about, like, here's some big, powerful, like, holy you know, information or here's a way to forward the lineage on with teachings. It's, it's not that it's just been so human. And I think that's that part, um, they talk about in mystical Christianity of anthropos, that idea of the full human and the full divine. And I so get that with this lineage in a way that I've never gotten before because I experience their humanity. That's what shows up first. And it is in that like full willingness to really be here, to just, I don't give a shit how powerful Jesus was or Magdalene was, like they fully committed to being here. And it was messy and fucking rough and not pretty. And it was traumatic for the whole group. <laughs> so that humanity, um, 
that's what moves me so much. And that's what makes it, I keep saying, so honest and real for me. So the work is, it's mostly just been this this healing work constantly. I mean, this information started happening, it'll be three years in August, and there's not there's not a week that goes by where I don't have another layer to unpeel. There's something else they want me to see and acknowledge. And the part that's so reciprocal and just really balancing with it is that it releases part of me. It, it's this... It's not just about doing something for someone else or just doing something for a lineage. It's this, and I think this is true for most of us, but by doing something that's so divinely organic and congruent, the truth of who I am just starts naturally emerging just in that process. And that's what my lineage wants. Like that's, I remember asking when I first started having, you know, more of the memories and just, they were body memories. It was just they weren't like big grand visions and, and you know at a certain point I like got my fight on for sure and I was like holy shit I cannot believe like how much of this has been treated on this planet as untruth and I was like should I storm the Vatican should I do this should I do that and you know they would just like laugh and just be like living as proof is is the best example like they don't ask me to do anything for them except for to speak my truth and in doing that that naturally heals the lineage and that's true for all of us and that to me has also been a real difference for me between what I call and this is sort of a Gnostic term but true light when I'm around true light beings or true light information that is so much of what it feels like, this commitment they actually have to my own self-awareness and empowerment and just remembrance of who I am and the, the ability then to then be of service that much more. It, it's, it's so clear. It's not trying to wow me with big divine blessings or transmissions or give me some like huge teachings or have me go out in the world and like profess this big thing. Everything is so related to to being myself. Mm-hmm. This phrase living as proof. I really like that. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I came from them. (laughs) Now, I want to clarify something, because in the first part of our conversation, you talked about Red and the Red Lady, Mm -hmm. and now you're referring... I'm not going to talk to you like you're in a mental institution or something, Sarah. (laughs) Don't worry. Now you're referring to the team. Yeah. And who's the team? They're the Red Team. I figured that they were wearing red. They're the Red Team. They're the Red Team. Um, So I call them, like, my homies or my posse or, like, my team, my peeps... But they definitely, part of them, are from that lineage um, in particular. But they feel broader than that as well. But they, um, and they've showed up in, you know, funny ways where I've, there's a story in the book where I have actually, like, completely let go of red because I thought red was just something getting in my way. I thought I was being too attached to this color. I I know in spirituality you're supposed to like not be attached to anything. And so I, I did all that and I got rid of Rab. And six months later, I was with two girlfriends in a park in Seattle and we we're walking through and one of them is very intuitive. And she just asked, like, how does Rab show up for you? And right before I could tell her, like, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing the Rab thing anymore. I stopped that. This um, girls track team, this like high school girls track team was running past us and they stopped immediately to our left and started jumping up and down and screaming at the top of their lungs go team red go team red and I remember my friends just turned to me and like their jaws open I'm like that happens all the time you know I'm like I can't I can't escape it but there was something in that moment for me of having thoroughly dismissed it red on every level like from physical concrete career levels because my whole career was based around red to to spiritual to energetic all of that and then actually having that experience there was something in me that was just like maybe that that whole idea of let go of something and if it's really yours it'll come back to you and then you understand that there's something really there for you and you're not just like clinging on to something like a security blanket and 
I really began to get that and just like the delight of it. Like just that's how they show up. Like they tickle and tease me and they're hilarious and they'll do things in this way where you're just like, all right. Like but when you say they, are there like different figures or what are... I don't have like... When I call the team, they're just sort of a group. Okay. Um, and then there's sort of like a facet of the group which feels more directly lineage related. And so that will step forward when there's a piece of me or a part of the information or just something that I'm sharing that feels very directly related to that to that lineage. But in general, they're just sort of like a big yeah. mess. <laughs> Okay, so I want to ask you just one more question yeah. about Sarah, mm-hmm. which is, I'm curious, you said that you wrote a version of the chapter once that was more about Sarah's role in a general, archetypal, cultural way. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you think there's something happening right now in this period of time where many of us are working through persecution complexes of some kind or another and what your insight into that might be. Oh, yeah. I I resonate with that a tremendous amount. I think there, or I know there was a part of every single one of us that got crucified, that's been persecuted. That's not just in a soul experience, possibly from a past lifetime, but it's just in the collective field. There has been such a lack of permission to fully own our divinity and our humanity here at the same time. And so when we start to actually bump up against that possibility, we're going to hit all of those complexes and all of those whatever we want to call them, memories. Um, they, they often feel like sort of tight bands. Um, but the persecution one in particular is just something we all have, we've all experienced in some shape or form. And so that lineage in particular, you know, is just, it's ripe with uh, healing around that and understanding. I mean, you can just keep diving into the crucifixion and you come up with something completely new that is directly related to your own life. And the piece of this that's important for me is the crucifixion is two parts. It's it's Jesus on the cross and it's Mary at the foot of the cross. And they're both equally important for me. And they're both making a very large cosmic statement. And the Magdalene piece, we just haven't recognized or acknowledged that feminine who actually dared to stay here who dared to stay alive and dared to hold the love that was created between them and her body and like implant it into the ground during a time that was like, there's no way a woman could do that and survive or be treated well or recognized. And she knew that very well and she still did it. And so that is a huge heroine aspect to me and just an honest part. It's the other half of the divine to me. And it's the part that we often dismiss or don't see or don't really look at. And Magdalene, interestingly enough, is more often than not depicted in paintings in a red robe or with red hair. She's often depicted holding a red egg as a symbol for, of new life. And the Greek Orthodox exchange red eggs on Easter. And there's a lot of red um, symbology around Magdalene. But that piece, those pieces to me, they, they, they can't not go together now. They're so fundamental. And in fact, the full, for me, the full message of what the crucifixion was is both. Like we actually cannot receive the full transmission if we are not including her role and her part in it because it's like not including a part of our own being and our own humanity so together they are the anthropos they both had to be it on their own but together it's like this big cosmic like story of our own embodiment they dared to incarnate and fully be here and so that's that's the calling i definitely hear from them the most be here, be real, be alive, and know you're divine at the same time. And like, can you actually do that? And we hear that all the time, be divine and be human. We hear it, but for me, I'm actually like finally beginning and I'm just at the, you know, way beginning of it, of understanding what that actually entails. 
and why that has not been allowed or permitted on this planet. You can be divine up to a certain point. You can be spiritual up to a certain point, but to actually own your own divine authority and sovereignty in this on this planet has just not been met with with good things normally. So each of us is going to hit some aspect of that if we're taking any sort of step into our own divinity as a human. And I want to ask you to indulge me here for a moment, which is I think this theme that we've been circling around in, in a lot of different ways of trusting ourselves and stepping out into our fullness. There's a couple paragraphs in the book where I think you write about this quite beautifully. I mean, many, 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 many pages. But I'm wondering if you'd read for our listeners uh, this part of the book that I've highlighted uh, towards the end. I hope this goes without saying, but you don't need to have visions or cosmic experiences. You don't have to pop past life pimples or go through a dark night of the soul in order to realize yourself. Your distinct divine self is dropping hints of itself all over your life. You just got to pay attention. And in my opinion and experience, the healthiest way to engage your divine self is through creating a more conscious and intimate relationship with your soul. She is the part of your divine self who incarnates. She is the bridge, the link to your everything. She knows your past, present, and future better than any book or teacher or psychic or spiritual tradition. She knows what you should read, who you should hang with, and where you should go now. In other words, she knows how and when your unique being unfolds organically. You don't want to force this rose to bloom or follow someone else's seven steps. If you relax, if you trust your soul, she will lead you to yourself. It will be a crazy journey, as unique as a snowflake, as transformative as a fire, as freaky as a fruitcake, as mysterious as the universe. So please, become your favorite subject. Study yourself. Sit at the feet of the teacher inside you. Cop a feel of your divine body. Live your love story. And share what you are learning with the rest of us. I just loved that section. (laughs) Especially the freaky as a fruitcake. It is freaky as a (laughs) fruitcake. You gotta just go with the freak. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's part of it. If you're willing to talk about the freaky, then other people are like, I've got a whole closet of freaky, too. And and then they bring it, and we're all like, okay, like, there's some freaky shit happening. How do we, how do we engage this, you know? And, and I do, I really hope, I hope that gives permission for the freaky (laughs) to, um, to be more accepted and, yeah, just respected. (laughs) Now, the note that uh, I'd like to end on Mm -hmm. is at the end of the book, you underscore this point, how when we know we are beloved, and it's a beautiful word, when we know we are beloved, how that changes everything in our life. And I wonder just as an ending comment, if you'd speak to that. There's a big difference between believing we're beloved or hoping we're beloved and and beginning to invite that experience of knowing we're beloved. And when you start connecting in a way that's appropriate for you to your soul, that starts to become a real natural experience because the soul's love for itself and for you is beyond anything that we could conceive of and it's beyond our own limitations of love and the amazing thing is it keeps growing because it is a relationship you're forming and it keeps expanding 
And so you start to walk differently. You start to talk differently because there's a part of your own being that is being filled by your own being. There's a piece that often we reach out for to be loved in all these different ways from the very obvious to the very subtle and not so obvious. And when that starts just naturally filling, we stop reaching out in those particular ways. And we have come home to ourselves, and it is an embrace. It's this embrace that extends throughout the entire universe to hold us. And there is nothing else out there that can do it in that particular way. So it's a natural piece of us that I feel we're supposed to experience I don't feel like it's some mystical grand thing. I think it's as natural as just beginning to, to initiate this deeper relationship with our soul. I've been speaking with Sarah Beek, who has written a new book, Red Hot and Holy, A Heretic's Love Story, a book that is daring and courageous and really fun to read, quite a romp, and a book that I think is quite permission-giving to all of us to come forward and express what we know in our bones. So thank you, Sarah. Thanks for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Thank you. It's been such a joy and honor to be here. Soundstreet.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Thanks.